this fall. Here she comes. There's a new name for adventure on television. Briscoe County Jr. You care to try me? He's all action. You're not an outlaw. No. He's all excitement. And he's about to bust loose into your living room. Welcome to the Wild West Fox style. And now, the series premiere of The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. Hi, everybody. This is Carlton Cues, the creator and executive producer of Briscoe. And I'm here with... Hello there, I'm Bruce Campbell, playing that guy Briscoe, that darn Briscoe. For Briscoe, I was partnered with a feature writer named Jeffrey Bohm, and we had an overall deal at Warner Brothers, and Jeffrey was the writer of Lethal Weapon 2, Lethal Weapon 3, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and I worked with him on the development of those movies, as well as on a number of other projects at Warner Brothers. While we were doing this, a executive named Bob Greenblatt at Fox through Warner's Television had us in for a meeting and said, look, I would love to do a television pilot with you guys. One of the things I'm really interested in is sort of like the old serials that used to run before, you know, Saturday matinee movies. It seemed like a really interesting challenge. So I really sort of jumped at the opportunity and I started really churning this around in my head and actually went out and was able to track down copies of some of these old serials and started watching them. And what I thought was really fascinating about these old serials was that they really sort of fell into two genres. Those were westerns and science fiction. So the idea occurred to me that, well, what if we combine these two genres together and actually do a Western with science fiction elements? I think good projects in Hollywood are blessed by circumstances that are sort of out of your control as a show creator. It's that magical thing that happens, and for whatever reason, when this pilot script existed, our world and Bruce Campbell's world crossed, and Bruce had come from the Evil Dead movies with Sam Raimi and had done things that were in a very different genre, in the horror genre, but, but that were sort of you know quirky and humorous in ways that were somewhat similar to what we were trying to pull off in the Briscoe pilot. As an actor, I, I base my reaction on whether I get nervous or not when I read a script. I read Briscoe and I started trembling pretty much because you, you get the anticipation of going, wow, this part is actually available. He was a Harvard-educated lawyer. He was smart, yet he knew all the cowboy skills. It was bigger than life. While reading, I'm going, oh yeah, sure, they're going to do that. There's orbs and this and trains going off into canyons. And it was big. It was really big. So I thought, well, it reads like a movie. This is like making a movie. I couldn't wait. Welcome to the debut episode of The Coming Thing. The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. podcast. I'm Diablo Frank, and with me is... Illegal Machine. And we both watched the Fox Television show from 1993. This is the 25th anniversary of the show. We're a little late in trying to get the show started, but honestly, I was actually planning on doing coverage of a whole other TV series for next year. And, you know, I knew that eventually we would do Adventures of Briscoe County Junior coverage, but it didn't occur to me that this is the 25th anniversary until I started seeing a bunch of observations of X-Files celebrating this quarter century and going oh yeah Briscoe County Jr. too so uh, a little bit of a rush job unfortunately but hopefully we can get a few of these out in 2018 for the anniversary technically it's the 100th anniversary because it's the 100th anniversary of Briscoe County Sr. being murdered by the John Bly gang so this is sort of like the 100th anniversary celebration the centennial anniversary of Briscoe County wait 100th anniversary he wasn't killed in 1918 oh you're right so it'd be the 125th anniversary thank you because math so tell me a little bit about your relationship with the show, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. So let's see, 1993 is when the show came out? Yeah. 
okay, I was preteen. So I, I just remember that there was something about the show that just really stuck with me. There were a lot of shows I watched when I was kind of this age. Well, I remember um, you didn't remember what network it was on. So did you even watch it in broadcast? Yeah, no, I did. I okay. did. Uh, I know I didn't catch every, I mean, you know, it was the early 90s. It was, if you missed an episode, you missed the episode. You were, there's no, you know, you can go, oh, I won't stream it online afterwards. It didn't exist. I, I've seen, I just remember seeing what I believe to be the vast more majority of episodes. But that whenever I could catch one, I caught it. Uh, did you ever see the pilot movie before? Yeah, I feel like I've, I've recognized a lot of that. And what's funny is I did not. Really? Yeah, because when we were first talking about doing this, you went online to see if there's any streaming options. I have the DVDs. And there is a streaming option out there that is obviously illicit because it's on a site that would not have it legally, obviously. And you're like, oh, this thing's you know two hours long. Was it that long? I'm like, no, nah, I don't remember them doing a feature film for the debut episode. When we were 45 minutes into it and they weren't any were near resolving the story i realized oh i was completely wrong about that and of course as you're watching the show you see that tons of clips from the show end up being in the title sequence of every episode of the series but i didn't remember the movie very well at all you know it's that's totally possible too it could be I, the parts i'm remembering are just the parts that made it into the title sequence you know, i don't think there was anything up, from the title up with the train coming mm-hmm. at them and stuff like that and may, uh, maybe that's where briscoe backing up into socrates and they're both going out the window yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Dixie Cousins seducing him and him dropping his uh, gun belt onto the floors from there. Uh, When he rears back onto Comet there, I think is one sequence from the... Pretty much everything from the title sequence of the series was in the the original movie. I feel like the orb... Did the orb float in water a lot throughout this series? I don't know if this is the only time that happens. I feel like the orb popping up in the water was another one that I'm just like... We may be... Okay, we may be getting ahead of ourselves, though. We might want to explain what The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. is. Okay, so the the basic premise of the show is that famed... What's he? A sheriff? He's a marshal. He's a marshal. Federal marshal, Briscoe County Sr. Briscoe County Sr. has finally brought in... The 13 members of the John Bly gang, which automatically throws me off because... Pete isn't uh, in the in custody, and Pete is like the number one well, yeah. lieutenant guy that you always see throughout the series. But instead, he's the guy who's engineering the jailbreak because they're all on a train. Briscoe County Senior is being re- interviewed by a, a reporter that he doesn't seem to have high regard for. He the reporter has lost his tie pin, which John Bly has somehow gotten a hold of and is using to work it on his shackles. But it doesn't really matter because Pete's already come up with a cool way of stopping the train. Yeah, so basically they put a gigantic rock on this train, and then he had a artist paint a perspectivized version of the train tracks going down with the sky and mountains and everything. There's a great little sequence where is Pete, is that his name? Was yeah, it? Pete's yeah. the yeah. So Pete's critiquing the guy's art technique. He really needs a sunset. And he's like, Pete, it's the middle of the day. Well, I like too how he goes after the French impressionist. Yes, yeah, yeah. This is the kind of show where I like where the, the show will go in a direction you're not expecting a Western to go into. This is a Western, by the way, because yes, you didn't get yes. on that. And so then obviously it's there to fool the train conductor just long enough so that he can't hit the brakes and crash into the stone. And see what's funny too is that that's some Wally Coyote thing you know like from a Warner Brothers cartoon and in 93 that seemed pretty far-fetched but after seeing all the internet videos of all these people doing cool stuff with perspectives or that hotel where they've got the weird geometric shapes that make you think that the floor is lumpy and it isn't you realize no perspective especially if you're you're depending on what you're seeing it from can absolutely fool you in real yeah. life yeah no, no totally and I, it, it, that was the first thing I thought of was you know those those street artists that do like chalk drawings on the ground it looks like a pit you know what I mean you like would stop before you stepped on it because it looks like you're about to fall into a pit and really it's just yeah I mean it absolutely would totally work especially when you're coming up on it at speed and it's like 
like you're coming around a bend on a train, I mean, you would glance up at it and just see, oh yeah, it's just more train track. When they you think twice they did it. a nice job though of leaving little bits of the edges of the the rock, so you could tell, you could tell, but you could also understand how you wouldn't be able to see that if you're in a moving train. Right. So anyway, the the train crashes into the rock. The remains of the Bly gang jump down, ambush the train, and while they're ambushing the train, Briscoe County Senior takes his pistol out and goes to the prisoner car. And as soon as he opens the door, the entire gang's escaped with weapons because they dropped weapons in through the roof. Which is not what he's going to be expecting. The break is actually very smart. He comes off positively Machiavellian. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, he he comes off very smart in that first episode. And it's later on in the show that he comes, you know, kind of cheeseball. So anyway, yeah, they, they drop weapons down, so he opens up the door. Expecting chained prisoners and not armed, and instead, released it's prisoners. it's literally yeah. 13 dudes holding shotguns and pistols, and then they all basically fire at once. And just light the dude up. And the last thing you see is his Peacemaker pistol falling to the ground. Earlier on, he made a point mentioning that he was a perfectly average, normal Peacemaker. It just had a really nice ivory-carved handle on it. So it was pretty, but it didn't make it shoot any better. That'll come into play later on. So anyway, from there we pick up with... Um, well, but even before that, though, and again, this is something that throws you off when you've watched the series, is the movie starts and there's no opening fanfare or anything. It's just scenes of a map, uh, really fuzzy text. You know, I think that this must have been shot for video because it still has a very bad video quality and they may, they may not get any better than that. But it's just showing like a map and showing the names of the various actors. And then they show coolies uh, because of the context. We'll say Chinamen, but these are these are Chinese essentially slaves working on a railroad, trying to dig through a mountain. And they find what's referred to as an orb, even though I don't know if that's really technically correct, because while the central mass may be an orb. It has all these cylinders, these smooth gold cylinders projecting out of it. So it looks more like an asteroid or something. It's very Sputnik-y. They pull some of these rods from out of this orb. The inside of the rods is a glass cylinder that glows blue. Energy shoots and hits the coolies, gives them superhuman strength. They break free of their chains and walk away. And so then we see the death of Briscoe County. And so one of the things that's blowing me away is that we're like, you know, five, ten minutes into this thing already. And the stars of the show have not appeared yet. There's still like this preamble. Right off the bat, it feels different than the rest of the series. It, it feels like it's sort of its own thing that's separate from the rest of the show. If he, I mean, the, the, the length of the show is feature filmy, an hour and 45, hour 50 or so. TV movie feature filmy, though. So it feels really stretched out a little but bit. But you can tell that's how they treated it, too. You had yeah. the prelude or. Mm-hmm discovery and then you go to the father's death mm-hmm. and that sets up all these big robber barons are all getting together to figure out who's going to go after the Bly gang right it, it doesn't make sense for this big bad bandit to be running around robbing them all they're trying to rob the american public and that kind of gets in the way of their their earnings so the big story is they select briscoe county jr and not well um, technically socrates pool their lawyer and the newspapers refer to him as their lackey is the one who picks him as the best choice although the, the closest runner-up is lord bowler who was a bounty hunter well, technically, um, they both are, right? I don't know. Is Briscoe? It sounds like Briscoe's never done this before. He's already a, a cowboy. He's already having adventures. So I, he's I don't a think cowboy he, having adventures. I don't think he's a bounty hunter. I think he is a bounty hunter, though. Is he? I just think he's maybe working off in Mexico someplace because they do set him up. The show opens up with him in Mexico, right, having run afoul of what appears to be some banditos, and uh, he's, a ba- got a, a he's got a bad poker game, and he got that mustache. awful mustache. Which yeah. I, I, I saw some stills from the the show when I was researching a, a few weeks back ahead of us actually recording something and i was like i don't remember briscoe county ever having that weird mustache no it's there all right but it's only in one scene of the, the pilot movie you want to talk about that scene no no okay 
Anyway, so then the robber barons are introduced to Briscoe County Jr. They're expecting somebody who's very erudite and clean cut. Because he was a lawyer. Harvard Harvard educated educated lawyer. Uh, And then he shows up and he's this crass cowboy, you know, who was like, oh, yeah. Dirty, smelly, hasn't had a bath in three weeks. Comes in dusting himself off, and they're like, <gasps> you know, gasping. Oh, and he's, he's smack-talking, too. He actually calls them robber barons to their faces. Which prompts, uh, man, what was the main dude's name? The, ra- the railroad guy. The, oh, the head of the ra- Oh, Lord, I'm going to have to check the IMDB on that. I'm, I'm not going to be able to pull that up. I think it's Ethan Emerson. We're just going to call him the lead robber baron for now because I don't, I, I can't, I name the character. Anyway, he's the head of the railroad. Clearly, he's not going to be in the rest of the series if we're not going to be naming him. But he's one of the group of bosses that are looking to pay for Briscoe County Junior. Right, and, and as soon as he, his, as soon as he's called robber baron, he's just like, eh, you know what? Good day. We'll we'll go get Lord Bowler. He'll be our guy. Good day with you, sir. And then he goes on a rant. What was great about this scene was we wanted to bring in all of these old actors. All these guys in this scene are guys that were famous. From- they basically had their own television show almost each one this is the virginian james drury had his own show right uh stuart whitman you know who i used to watch him doing westerns in the 60s and 70s exactly a real tough guy and then some of the other guys in here were uh, uh rayford barnes uh, paul brinegarth robert right. fuller was on emergency yeah exactly he but he'd also voice. done westerns too yes you know. he had exactly and I thought that was a great idea because each of these guys has their own persona. They're great character actors, and they were great old tough guys. He had been talking about he was looking for the coming thing. He's always been interested. That's the thing that got him away right. from being in the law. He, they said he'd wasted seven years of his life going to law school and then not becoming a lawyer. And he's like, better than wasting my entire life. I'm looking for something more than just the law, something great that's going to come from the future to make our world a better place. And they're like, this guy's a dreamer. He's an idiot. Well, no, what, I lo- what I love but is But then he explains that, yeah, yeah, but regardless of all that stuff, nobody's going to fight harder than me. Nobody's going to shoot straighter than me. You know, it's not just because I'm the son of Briscoe County. This isn't my birthright. It's because I'm the best man for this job. And that's what convinces them. But the reason they were about to fire him is because when he's explaining to him what the next big thing is, they're like, well, what is it? And he was all like, you bunch of robber barons or whatever. He's like, is, if 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 it was already here, it wouldn't be the next big thing. And that's when they're like extremely offended. Like, oh, we get it, dude. Nice one. And that's when they're like, peace out. But then he goes on his his nice rant about, I'm the best, I'm the quickest draw, I'm the best, I'm the toughest, I'm the smartest. They were easily swayed, you yeah. know? He didn't have to give them any demonstration or anything. They're like, oh, okay. Well, you, you failed us immediately, but, you know, we're going to let you fail upwards and give you the job. Let's go ahead and sign the papers, and we like your moxie. It, it had a lot to do with moxie. Lots of moxie. The Hudsucker Proxy was in the can, Army of Darkness was about to hit the theaters, and I had just landed a new talent agent. Things were looking up. My first audition as their client was for the lead in a new Western TV show. With a television series, you don't just get the lead part, you've got to earn it. And landing the title role in The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. was a journey of its own. With a TV series, particularly with me, it was my first series. you got to crawl through glass to get it. For me, it was about five times I went back. Audition number one was for the casting director. Their job, among other things, is to separate the chaff from the wheat and send only the best actors to the next level. I remember walking into the casting director's office, and, you know, it was a Western, so you tend to think, well, maybe there's a little drawl with this guy. And the second a southern accent came out of my mouth, he went, drop the accent right now. So immediately, I think I made a bad impression, and then we had to start again. Actors all look for a way to leave an impression on casting directors to avoid being lost in the shuffle. One audition piece for the show involved some fighting. Well, there wasn't much I could do in this small office, so I fell back on an old Bonzoid sister's routine and flipped myself head over heels. Oh, my God! The casting director screamed as he lurched back in his chair. 
This left a favorable impression, and I was able to audition for the producers. Now, they carry a large amount of weight when it comes to who gets cast for what, but in this high-stakes chess game, producers are not the final word, not by a long shot. With a reading and another flip, I cleared that hurdle. Audition number three was with the producers again. More of a work session than anything, it was to get me ready for the Warner Brothers TV execs. Audition number four was in a room full of attentive, quiet people. Among them were the one or two individuals who could send me up to the next level. Just before the audition, the casting director cornered me. Bruce, you can do that flip thing again, aren't you? Yeah, sure, I said, as long as the back holds out. But it was highly effective. I, you know, it, was, it left an indelible impression every time you did it. I'm killing myself. I'm like, give me the part already. I'll stop flipping. Audition number five was the big one for an even larger group of quiet people. The freaky thing about network auditions is that you have to pre-negotiate your deal. You have to hammer out every detail down to plane tickets and per diem with agents, lawyers, and business affairs people, and you still might not even get the part. Networks had obviously been in the awkward position of approving someone and then failing to close a deal. After the audition, which I could do in my sleep by that point, I decided to give the network brass a little speech. Actors aren't encouraged to interact with them, but I thought, you know the hell with it. They should know who they're getting into business with. Look, um, I just wanted you folks to know that if you cast me in this part, I won't stab you in the back. I'm a hard worker, and I'll do everything I can to help this show become a success. Okay, well, I guess that's it. Thanks for your time. You know, not only did Bruce bring sort of a special humor and acting chops to the role, but also this incredible physicality that became very much a part of what defined who Briscoe was. Driving home that night, I got the call. I'll spare you the descriptions of how I hooped and hollered. It's far too embarrassing. You know, look, it's every actor's dream to play a cowboy. So when this opportunity came up, I mean, yeah, where do I sign? It was just one of those kind of collisions of an actor and a script that was just perfect. I mean, he was the right guy. I can't imagine Briscoe having ever existed without him. It was very, very exciting because I had never worked on a studio lot before. So here I was working for a studio. I had a studio contract, you know, working at the same place where Errol Flynn and Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis worked. It was really, really exciting. Uh, so from there we go. He and, you know, we uh, don't have to go like scene by scene, but uh, we do want to establish that Socrates Pool is going to be his direct supervisor, but all, he's liaison is the way they put it. Like there's the money men, there's him who's going to be basically holding the purse strings and looking for reports and things like that, and then there's Briscoe actually on the road tracking to track down the Bly gang. And then, of course, they they get an invite to dinner. They go to a dinner, and they're confronted by Lord Bowler, who basically puts explains that as long as Briscoe County Senior was working, he could barely make enough money to make this whole gig worthwhile for himself. Uh, and and now, just when it looks like he's going to be able to finally make a living as a bounty hunter, Junior shows up and is going to ruin everything. So he says, "I'm going to uh, the last person who leaves this table gets the job." And then he puts a stick of dynamite on the table, lights it. Hijinks ensue, where he was like, you know, I. I- which was a great scene because Briscoe County's like, oh, you know what? I think I'm going to be here a while because I'm real hungry. And then he opens up the menu and he's just slowly reading. And then he asks for the uh, uh, the waiter to come over and the waiter sees it. And he's like, oh, my God. And he was all like, um, what do you suggest? He's like, the minute steak? And he was like, mm, no. And then, of course, they're all like sweating going crazy. And you see the, the waiter's kind of doing this. <laughs> Like trying to blow it out from a distance as he's like sweating right in the thing. And it, it was great, great, yeah. hilarious scene. And then he's like, oh, the steak rare. And then he's just right away, sir. Zoom. Yeah, he's like thick, rare. And he's like, right away. And he runs off until finally, you know. Uh, Lord Bowler Lord- uh, knocks over the dynamite, cuts it with his big old buoy knife that he'll use throughout the series. And then they get into a fight. And once they get into a fight, they get arrested. Yeah, and then Lord Bowler doesn't want anything to do with 
Briscoe County because uh, he's just like, look, we're going to get 60 days. This judge is harsh but fair. Just shut up and let him do his thing. And Briscoe's like, starts talking. Bowler makes it clear, I got nothing to do with this guy. And then Briscoe lawyers his way out of the situation. And Lord Bowler's like, oh, well, we'll wait with him. But he ends up going to get packed off to jail. And that gives you, that starts to show you a little bit that, yeah, Briscoe may be the, the goofy, kooky cowboy, but he did go to law school and he's not, he's not a, he's not an idiot. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, that, and once he stops trying to, to swagger in front of the robber barons and also, I think that it's just a clear expression of his contempt for them. He wants this job, but he can't. I don't think he can stand who he's doing the job for. Once it's just him and Socrates Poole, he shows more of his intellect. He softens a bit, even though he does still treat Poole as a bit of a lackey. And then, of course, you have the friendly relationship with Lord Bowler where they're both fighting over the same job. The Fox guys wanted to debut the show in August, and so it came on on August 17th in uh, 90. Two, I believe, or ninety-three. Ninety-three. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. ninety-three, and uh, and we ran for twenty-seven episodes in one season, and that was. I mean, that's just an extremely huge order when you think most television shows for a one-hour show, not yeah. a half-hour show. Right. So you've got the shooting time. Yeah, and it was uh, for the most part a single camera as well. It wasn't the you know nine different cameras and things like that. It was a pretty straightforward way of shooting the show. Right. Funny that you know talking about all the western stuff. You know, we had to do the gun tricks, and it was a trick to find a guy, and I think the guy's name, and I hope I pronounce it right for his sake, is is uh, Arvo Ojala. He was, uh, oh, yeah, he was a guy, one of these old-timers who came out, and he came to the set and said, all right, if you want to pull it out, cool. You, you want to cock it while you pull it out. Here's how you spin the chamber on your arm. You flip it from one hand to the next. You do quick stashes in there. And so it's a great thing that you could do between takes. You just well, practice your gun stuff. What about the rest? Send it off to the dead sheriff. We were pulling guys yeah, he, almost he from totally the grave. out of retirement. He you know, <laughs> came out of retirement, I think, practically yeah. to do that. Uh, and he was um, he was fantastic. And and the thing was, and Bruce completely committed to learn how to do all this stuff. And we wanted in the uh, you know Jeffrey and I wanted in this in the in the pilot to put in all this sort of iconic Western stuff. So all that stuff you saw of rolling the barrel down and using the gun. You really wanted to establish that Briscoe had this special gun and it was his father's gun and. And yeah, then, you know that you know, and the, the horse and and every you know all the we we sort of decided to sort of take all these sort of you know iconic vestiges of westerns and and sort of reinvent them with the new kind of comic. Uh, but flair. also would allow the guy to defend a character in court. He wasn't just a yes ma'am no ma'am character, right. which I thought was a huge Im- improvement on on the the archetype of that character. This was a fun sequence too because it shows you the Briscoe cashing in on his legal experience of being able to get himself out of jail basically exactly we were trying to show that there were you know sort of many arrows in the quiver of uh, briscoe's arsenal and they weren't just the traditional iconic cowboy things he could do all of those but he could also basically defend himself with his words right and the, the thing is you know you talk about having to learn to do stuff we uh you know ran into gordon spencer the great old wrangler who basically we had to i had to learn how to ride a horse and all the tricks for what you do with a horse on set Briscoe starts trying to investigate what happens. John Bly, the master criminal, gets word of that, and then he starts setting up a circumstance where he was going to try to get rid of Briscoe. But do you want to talk a little bit about John Bly? I don't know. We don't really get introduced to him very much in this. Yeah. And by the way, we might want to mention, too, Briscoe County is played by Bruce Campbell. What was your relationship to Bruce Campbell, the actor, when you first started watching Briscoe County Jr.? Was this your introduction to him? You know, it actually might have been, because I don't really know if I'd seen any. Oh, you know what? When did Army of Darkness come out? Before this. Before this. Okay, so Army of Darkness was my first Briscoe County. I mean, uh, Bruce, uh, Campbell. Bruce Campbell. 
uh, introduction. So it, did well, you so recognize Ash. him from one? Yeah, yes, okay. yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And see, me, I had been very curious about Evil Dead Two since it had been advertised back in '86, and there was a big hubbub about it because it was X-rated essentially, and they released it unrated. And so I was always super interested in it, but I didn't get to watch that movie until I think around '90 or so. And so I basically went from like. Evil Dead 2, Evil Dead, Army of Darkness, all in the span of like a year or two. And so I was very familiar with Bruce Campbell. So I was really excited for this show when it was announced. So it was actually kind of weird for me because Briscoe County was such a different character than Ash Williams. He's different in a way. He'll he's get, still he's very more, Bruce Campbell, so it's yeah. it's kind of hard to separate any of his uh, characters. I would say that the scene where he's confronting the Robert Barons is very on-brand Bruce Campbell, Ash Williams. And I think as the episode progresses, you get more into Briscoe County. Because I don't think he ever played a character like Briscoe County Jr. for pretty much the rest of his career. Because he actually is a straight hero. He's yeah, not an anti-hero. Noble. He's yeah. not. Yeah, exactly. But it, initially, he comes off as being more of roguish, which falls away pretty quickly as the series progresses. And then uh, what about Lord, uh, Lord Bowler? We should probably mention, too, this is a large African-American man. He's listed as a calf breed, so I think he's supposed to be part Native American. And, you know, besides running around in a duster and having long, curly hair, not unlike Bishop, because, of course, everybody was fan-casting Julius Carey as Bishop throughout the early 90s, uh, Bishop being the X-Men character. Thank you, Wizard Magazine. Yeah, But he also, of course, runs around with a dark blue bowler on, so it's pretty distinctive. Well, it looks like he's wearing, like, Union soldier clothes, too. Oh, is that what that? Yeah, you're right. I think he is wearing a Union uh, uniform. Form or a variation on it. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know if they ever. There's some like Native American touches in the mix as well, though. Yeah, yeah. He's a crass, hard talking bounty hunter. And then John Bly, played by Billy Drago. Were you familiar with him before the show? Airwolf. Wasn't he an airwolf? No, I think you're thinking of Jan Michael Vincent. Although uh, the physical similarity they is definitely look a there. Lot they look like a lot other, alike. Right? So what else? He was we... in one of the Delta Force sequels, the Chuck Norris movies. Yeah, he played a uh, think... uh, drug dealer. I think he was doing Brownface for that. I Bring think he's playing up a Latino. IMDb for him, dude. I know. Um... Well, Billy Drago was one of these guys who was in he all these horrible everything. action movies of the 80s. That was like Always his whole thing. Always the villain in all these movies. Let's see. I'm going to go from the 80s forward. Yeah, probably a good idea. He did a lot of westerns. Really? He was on Hardcastle and McCormick. Oh, he was in Pale Rider with Clint Eastwood. Never saw Pale Rider. Invasion USA. Maybe that's what I was thinking of with Chuck Norris. He did a Trapper John MD, a Moonlighting. He did Hunter. Hunter. I, think I remember from Hunter. He did a Fall Guy, a TJ Hooker. So obviously he's one so of these dudes who did all, all sh- those. Because I don't people don't remember well, maybe not today, because they don't do that as much today, but back from the eighties backwards mostly, you had these actors to where they would just go from show to show to show. One week you'd see that character the actor would be playing the pretty much the exact same character. But they'd just go from show to show playing that character type, you know, over and over again. And then Billy Drago was one of those guys. He was always that slimy vicious cutthroat type guy i definitely saw him at hunter and fall guy there is no doubt that is my oh. that is my 80s wheelhouse hunter fall guy dukes of hazard and and i know too one of the big one two two big ones for me he was in vamp the grace jones vampire movie he was the lead the albino lead uh, gang uh, banger and then he was in untouchables he was the assassin mm. in the kevin Costner sean connery movie which the i Untouchables. Hated. you hated the untouchables I, hated it. I thought it was so boring i'm sorry i love that movie um, uh, it, it's critically acclaimed. I watched it and I was like, "This movie is freaking terrible." I remember, like the scene where what's his name, Sean Connery, gets shot and killed is like the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Well, well, since we're spoiling that aspect, Drago's the one who kills. Him. Was he the one that killed him? Yeah, oh yeah. my god! It's just it goes on and on and on. It's just a 
it's ridiculous. The movie's ridiculous. That that movie is special to me because I have mentioned this occasionally on some of our other podcasts, but for a time in that that period, my father worked in uh, confections or concessions. He was basically the guy who would travel from movie theater to movie theater, stocking candy bars, popcorn, drinks, all that kind of stuff. And so one day, it, he thought he, he I've, I've talked to him and he thinks he we did this a bunch of times. We did this one time ever in my life. He picked me up on a Friday when I was off from school and we went from movie theater to movie theater. And I watched several movies over the course of that. I watched The Monster Squad, I watched The Untouchables, and I want to say I caught some of the Living Daylights even though I've checked the cr- timeline and it doesn't really make sense. The movie would have to have been in theaters for a long time for me to have seen that one. But I definitely caught the other two because I saw the vast majority of both those movies. I think I managed to actually finish the Monster Squad, but it was like a year or two before I ever got to finish The Untouchables. And the last scene I saw in the theater was the execution of Sean Connery's character. So I did not get to see Billy Drago brought to justice for like a year or two after that. It wasn't, it wasn't until we actually got a VCR and then we could rent the movie. Monster Squad is the winner of those two. What else do you keep going? I, I'm not going to debate that because I, I do prefer Monster Squad. Even yeah. though I, I acknowledge Untouchables is the better movie, I've seen Monster Squad so many more times than I've seen The Untouchables. But uh, yeah, so Billy Drago. That's so, it? What, nothing else that he's in? That is oh, you, if you're talking about later stuff... Uh, I, the one I was show? referencing was Delta Force 2, the Colombian con- connection where he played Ramon Cota. So yeah, definitely brown face. He was in Cyborg 2. He did a Walker, Texas Ranger. Mm, wouldn't have seen that. A Nash Bridges, also a Carlton Cruz show. Bridges, okay. He did an X-Files. He was in a Michael Jackson video. I'm sure I saw his Nash Bridges episode. I'm sure I saw him in X-Files. He did a run in Charmed. I would not have seen Charmed. That was not in my show. A Masters of Evil. He did the remake of Hills Have Eyes, but it wasn't a great role. He did a Supernatural. He was in one of the Children of the Corn sequels, but this was 2011. Mm. I doubt you saw that. That's post anybody giving a a care about uh, Children of the Corn. So the guy's prolific. It's one of those dudes you see him on tons of TV shows. You know who he is. As soon as he shows up, you know what kind of character he's playing. It was a great shorthand. He was was the evil, slimy guy in tons of shows. So, but we don't get to see a lot of him, except that we realize that he's a master criminal that's going to be orchestrating the various heists of all these different sub bosses underneath him. The one, one we're concerned about is what's his name? Big Smith? What's the dude's name? Yeah, that's right. I think it's Big Smith. And you're right. That's a good way to put it. All these other boss battles because they make it pretty clear that he's having to take out all these tentacles before he gets to john bly i recognize him from a bunch of stuff too yeah he, the main one i think you remember is con air oh for sure yeah even con air oh, that's another terrible yeah. film mc Gainey as uh, as big smith big smith yeah a great character actor who who you've you're using again yes he's now on lost uh playing one of the mysterious others Oh, one thing I didn't catch, totally missed this. Briscoe County, uh, County Senior is Arlie Ermey from Full Metal Jacket. Because the dude's got like a mustache. Did he even have a full beard? He definitely had a mustache and long hair. So I totally didn't recognize him. But it's Arlie Ermey. Cool. Crazy. Was it the drill sergeant or what? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. We can't. I, we're, we're I was going to start to shoot we're some trying quotes to do, off. Yeah, we're, we're trying to do this show clean. So we, we can't do any quotes from Full Metal I Jacket. I nearly like fired off. And I was like, oh. oh nope, 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 nope. So yeah, so basically the, 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 sh- the big points of the show are that at one point, Briscoe runs into a professor, uh, Albert Wickwire, who is uh, like a scientist who is very fond of Dixie Cousins, who is a stage performer, a uh, burlesque stage performer. Uh, we meet uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Wickwire's daughter, Amanda Wickwire. And uh, we meet the the people that are involved with Big Smith's gang. Most importantly, Pete, who is a gunslinger who will be around throughout the series. Kind of a weirdo, kind of a goof. Um, very eccentric. Very eccentric. You know, don't touch Pete's 
pistol. Ever you touch Pete's pistol, he'll kill ya. But yeah, so Briscoe's trying to work. Oh, we've completely. I'm sorry, I completely forgot to. At one point, he run the uh, Big Smith decides what we're going to do, or sorry, what John Bly decides they're going to do is they're going to trick the Scarred Foot Clan into going after Briscoe County Jr. And the Scarred Foot are basically Tong, their Chinese mob uh, back in 1893. And they get into a big fight in a hotel room. You see that the reason why they're called the Scarred Foot Clan is because they have scars across their feet. Now, this this was uh, this was, was one of my favorite scenes here. And, um, you know, we, again, in the sort of effort to kind of mix up the genres of this, this was sort of our uh, homage to doing like a little, a little bit of like you know Asian martial arts stuff in here. <laughs> we sort of you know Briscoe versus the uh, the uh, the uh, the Asian you know kung fu the Asian master. Yeah, ma- ma- I love this line. It's <laughs> just the greatest. <laughs> anyway, these guys came in and. Uh, you know, we have this fantastic. Which is good. Fight. It's a good ninja element. It's yeah. a, it's a very it's another dangerous yeah. element. It's not the traditional bar fight, fist fight. You know, now you're fighting with guys who are have have uh, weapons for hands. You know, and we pretty much put in like everything but the kitchen sink in this pilot. You know, and that's what you have to do in a pilot. You have to try to sell. Uh, there's there's a big clue there. The scarred the feet. scarred foot clan. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The scarred foot clan. And uh, you know when you make a pilot, you really you really try to put everything but the kitchen sink in it, so that you can kind of convince the network that there's enough stuff to sustain a hundred episodes. So there was a certain calculatedness to some of this, which was okay. We're just going to show you that there are many avenues that Briscoe can take, and you know if it has to, it'll become a martial arts show if it needs if that's what it needs to be to get a right. third season. Briscoe is led on a uh, hunch. Or sorry, he, he he manages to get one of the Tong's medallions, and he tries to track it down in Chinatown. He talks to a gentleman who speaks in a obvious modern day California accent. In no way, it thinks, I mean, I think it's maybe for the best because they could have done like a horrible stereotypical Chinese accent, but instead he just totally sounds like a dude from Cali in '93, right? Really? You don't think that guy had a Cali accent? He did not sound period authentic for sure. It sounded almost like he was trying to do. No, I sense some bad Chinese accent in there. I no? didn't. Are you serious? He just sounded like All a right. dude. I okay. think. The, I think the dialogue might have been uh, stereotypical, mm, but his delivery. Okay. He just sounded like a dude. Um, but this leads Briscoe to finding an underground lair uh, where these dudes uh, basically they prove their metal by fighting on hot coals. Hence the scarred foot. Right. And they're looking to try to fight to the death with Briscoe County Senior Junior. When the, the head of the gang, James Hong, a uh, noted character actor, I, I, I'd be curious to know how Chinese, Asian people see James Hong. Because this guy was like the official Asian dude in everything for like 30 years straight. Like Asian Cheech Marin, basically. More so. more so. Cheech Marin does not represent Latinos the same way that James Hong did Chinese people. Because there were at least other Latinos. For years, I can't think of anybody else who was an actual Asian person that got the parts like this dude did. Usually it would be like Peter Sellers pretending to be Asian as opposed to having an actual Asian dude in these things. Um, but for, for people of our generation, that he'd be most famous for Big Trouble in Little China. Of course. He's Lo Pan. Um, and so it turns out that he is the one who carved the ivory handle on Briscoe County Senior's Peacemaker as a sign of gratitude for the help that he had given. And so he immediately recognized that. They determined. Well, wait, that was a good scene, though, where, where he got his pistol. Where you know they, they showed his hat and all of his personal belongings and his pistol. He's like, oh, I'll take the pistol. He's like, send the rest of it to the dead sheriff's uh, museum. And he was like, that's kind of cold, don't you think? And, and Socrates says this. Socrates You're, it's says cold. That. And and he sort of just sort of explains, you know, look, by 
my father knew the the line of work he was getting into and Socrates, you know, sort of deduces, oh, well, you've been basically preparing for him to be dead your whole life. And he's like, that's right, basically. And was just, it was a very cold, yep, I'll take his pistol, send the rest of it away. I don't, I don't need any of it. We, we thought he was a tickle. They, they do a very good job of making you understand that even though he's taken this job, it's not some sort of some revenge. Right. He's not that guy. Yeah. He's not doing the, you killed my father, prepare to die. Like there's none of that, which I think yeah. is very interesting. Well, and there's several scenes where they test that that uh sentiment too and he, he it bears out over and over again he's not angry he's not seeking revenge he's trying to finish his father's work he's trying to capture the men who who were evil guys who needed to get captured anyway it just all happens to the guys who killed his dad but he, he's Which, wanting to capture them because the, the money's there and because it needs to get done these are bad men uh so he's a guy who's just really straight he's not He's just not an angry guy. It, it was something that was so different, especially once you got further into the 90s where there were so many rugged anti-heroes and stuff. And for me, especially watching it today, it's very refreshing to see guys like, look, these are just bad guys and I need to catch them. That's the job. Well, and I like they do. They, they go and like you said, they test it throughout the episode. Uh, they want you to understand this is not a revenge saga. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And when, when it is, you totally think it's set up to be, like you said, it's, it's going to be, he's going after the guy that killed his pappy or whatever. And it's just, he just, and he corrects people throughout the show. It's just, that's not what it is. I'm going to finish his job. He was trying to catch the baddest dude out there. And now I'm just trying to catch the baddest dude out there because he's gone. And, uh, and, and those little scenes like that where the boxes of all of stuff, aren't you sentimental? Don't you want all your father's stuff? And he's just like, no, send it to the museum. Yeah. I just got to get. I, I can use the gun. I can't use the rest of the stuff. Right. I got my own hat. And they they even kind of showed the hat. And you're like, oh, I bet he's going to put the hat on. No, nope. the hat goes back in the box. He's got his own hat. He doesn't need his dad's hat. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's little stuff like that is just really, really different. And especially like you said, for the time, kind of refreshing. And mm-hmm. even today, this yeah. would totally be a revenge tale. Totally. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So, you yeah. know what I mean? Uh, the you killed my father. Prepare to die. That, that's what this would be all about and it's just not it's very it's a very interesting take mm-hmm. and very conscious one too it's extremely conscious that they're doing this yeah and so uh briscoe manages to get to the gang through the singer dixie cousins who's played by kelly rutherford and she is very much a may west kind of you know nothing but double in uh, a double entendre coming out of this woman's mouth it's all innuendo and i think it's great fun it's interesting because i think it's pretty clear that they're trying to set up uh, the professor's daughter, Amanda Wickwire, as the love interest of the series. And the chemistry is just not there with the actress, where immediately the chemistry is there with uh, Dixie Cousins. Yeah, yeah. And so when you're watching the show, it looks like Dixie Cousins is going to be a femme fatale that comes and goes, and in, in, she ends up being in the majority of the episodes going forward. Yeah, she was good. You're right. They, they were really, really good whenever we were on screen together. And as you said, man, they laid the innuendo on thick. Well, not just that, visually, too. The show plays very family-friendly, and yet she comes out in uh, full lingerie, and especially the hips, man. That, that yeah. was not that was some, uh, 8 o'clock hips. Yeah, again, but you know, there's a scene who's like, oh, they're planning on robbing a railroad, really? Where's the railroad at? South. Way south. And then her hand's like moving down, and you're like, oh, what's going on? This is- Past the mountains into the valley. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so let's see. So there's various uh, turns of fortune and some investigating on Briscoe's part. Did we did we talk about the the handle of the gun? Yeah. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. That he was the one that carved the handle. Right. Okay, mm-hmm. I spaced out and missed that. Sorry. Uh, various turns of fortune and investigations occur. Uh, for a while there, Briscoe pretends to be an outlaw, and that gets him in with Big Smith's gang. He runs afoul of Pete. And they I should say, that there was another scene where they do the testing, where he's sitting at the table having a drink with uh, Big Smith, and Big Smith's like, you wouldn't happen to hurt a Briscoe County Junior, would you? And he's all like, no. Oh, wait, wasn't he, isn't he like a marshal? And he's like, no, 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 that's Briscoe County Senior. And then he's talking about, I'm the one who killed him. And he talked about they... Me and 12 other guys. Yeah, and how they r- riddled his body full of da-da-da-da-da. And the whole time you're waiting for... Well, he's talking about how he's he's a squaw lover and a card cheat and all kinds of other slurs of the day, supposedly. Yeah, and Briscoe's just t- you know taking his sip of whiskey, like okay, all right, just so, and you know, and you can tell they're they're zooming on, on Big Smith's face as he's saying all these you know slights towards his pappy, and no, doesn't get a rise out of him. He's good to go. The gang definitely distrusts Kansas Peter, whatever they, Kansas Joe or whatever the hell he's calling himself, but they don't know that there's anything wrong with him and he does show some some aptitude and he ends up being useful so they keep him around for a little bit. But he runs afoul of Pistol Pete by touching Pistol's piece, which he cannot do, and so he's going to have a shootout in the in the street like you see in the movies. Pete, though, has three other guys at different angles ready to shoot Briscoe so that they make sure he's going to die. Briscoe hits the dirt and all four guys end up shooting one another and appear to die. Except one of the guys is Pete. And as I mentioned before, Pete appears throughout the series. So clearly somebody decided that they wanted more Pete before all was said and done. So you can, you can definitely tell they haven't quite figured out the show yet. Probably a pretty good idea because he does kind of separate himself from the, the rest of the gang as being oh, sure. the most he, memorable, he, right? He stands out far more than Big Smith does. Yeah, yeah. I like Pete throughout the series, and there are moments in the show, this the pilot, where I like Pete, and there are other moments where he is so obnoxious, yeah. he's like the worst thing in the show at the same time. So it's it's a real contrast between do we or do we not want Pete around? It's a very good question, uh, and you're right. Yeah, sometimes Pete's his 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 persona is so different. You're like, wow, he's it, it's good to have him in the show, and like I said, he's memorable in the scenes that he's in. But then you're right, sometimes he's. So so eccentric and so obnoxious ridiculous, the word, obnoxious, especially when he's singing that obnoxious, time. Yeah, and way you're like, too, the bit's going way too long. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. So ultimately, Briscoe and Lord Bowler are tied up on the railroad tracks with a train coming at them. We haven't talked about Comet yet. You want to get into Comet? Comet's his horse. Comet doesn't know that it's a he's a horse. And so he does things that are very unhorse-like, like walking into buildings and knocking on doors. Now, people who have not seen the show, it sounds super cheeseball. And you may have been with us in this podcast until we just mentioned that his horse doesn't believe that he's a horse and does things that horses don't do. Of course, of course. But. Well, there's a great bit, too, where Comet starts talking to Socrates. Right. Well, at least we think he is. And it turns out that it's Lord Bowler. <laughs> right. Saying, hey, where's. Uh, that was I love that bit. That was yeah, great. that was hilarious. Um, but no, it'll be like like when they first when he first meets all the robber barons and uh, Comet just sort of struts through the hallways and not what does he knock on the door or whatever and and Briscoe opens it up and he's like yeah get back outside like he just does this right. every now and then uh, super Comet, intelligent horse yeah super super intelligent but his vulnerability is green apples right so as long as you can give Comet green apples he'll do whatever you wants Lord Bowler placates his appetite for green apples that's what leads him to Briscoe County which then gets him all messed which, up because Big Smith blows is also his cover the green apple yeah, thing yeah blows his cover and that. That's how the two of them get tied up on the tracks. But Comet is also the one who saves them, so he redeems himself. Right. So Comet stomps on the the ropes to break the rope so he gets up. Today I met an interesting fellow, a professor by the name of Wickwire. Like me, he seems to have one eye on the future, always looking for the coming thing. He seems to be a bit off his rocker, but I like the guy anyway. 
he had built this thing in his barn that's difficult to describe. In essence, it's a giant cylinder filled with fuel that, when ignited, will cause enough thrust to lift the apparatus off the ground at a great velocity. Very fancy vehicle. In fact, it came in pretty handy today when I needed to make up some lost ground in a hurry. We laid it out horizontally and set it on a railroad car, lit the fuse, and let her rip. I have to say, it was one of my better schemes. Now, if I only knew how to stop it. When the show was coming out, it was heavily promoted by Fox. Fox assumed this show was going to be a big hit. And the one image you saw in all the commercials was Briscoe goes to the Professor Wickwire. And Wick, he knows from having met him throughout the, the episode that he's been working on a rocket. And he actually talks to him about things he could do to improve the rocket because they, they make a point of showing Briscoe's intelligent guy. He knows Latin. He knows how rockets work. That kind of thing. So they strap the rocket to one of those railway derricks, whatever you call the things, the, the pump things where you push yourself along the railway. And so he rockets after the train that they're robbing that's full of gold and also happens to contain the orb. And there's a, a fight ensues. Big Smith ends up falling off of the, the rail, off of a... Uh, we never say, the, the government seizes the orb. Did we mention that? Because we didn't be, get into that. It's supposed to be taken yep. to the Smithsonian to be studied. Yeah. Because it obviously has some sort of special power. Right. But, but, instead, but they show that very early on and make you kind of forget about the orb. Yeah. Yeah, because again, they, there's a sci-fi element from the very beginning, and then a little tiny bit of it in the middle, and then at the end it pops up a little bit one more time, until it pops up in a big way. So... Briscoe uses the orb to deflect a bullet being shot by Big Smith, then throws the orb at him and knocks him off of a bridge into rapids where he drowns, apparently. The orb is bouncing in the water and disappears, and so this is another loose thread that's going to pick up later on in the series. Briscoe goes back to town, and he confronts one of the robber barons, because it turns out that he was the one who had tipped Dixie off to the gold bullion-carrying train. Because they mentioned Because er they mentioned he wanted earlier. to get the orb, since the orb was being seized by the government, because... While it was his coolies that found the orb, he owns the track. He doesn't own the land. It's government land. And the government feels like they need to have a thing that can give you superhuman powers. And he feels like, no, he ought to have that. So Briscoe County confronts the robber baron, one specific robber baron, the one whose coolies had found the orb. Oh, no, I don't remember now. So they, they make a point of saying, hey, nobody, that's fine that you know that a train has gold on it. The, the important thing is you need to know the train schedules. The train schedules are very closely guarded. And that's where Briscoe puts two and two together. There's got to be a mole or something. That yeah. Someone who, can, who knows train schedules must have tipped off Dixie that could tick off tip off big smith to then know where to set the booby trap for the train i do win. wonder if there was maybe some stuff that got cut too because they make a big point of how the rock that was painted at the beginning of the show you would take somebody with special skill to do that they managed to track down who that person is and then he fled town and then nothing ever comes of that yeah, again you're right so i don't know that's just part of showing the detective skills of briscoe county as a way to show his intelligence it doesn't actually end up contributing at all to the resolution of the story Except but, other than the coincidence that that's where dixie happen to be playing that night. Well, just because they were discussing that that revelation. Um, because Dixie is Big Smith's girlfriend, and that's how they, they, they she gets dragged into it. But the Robert Barron is Granville Thorogood, who's played by Stuart Whitman, uh, who's probably best known for the Comancheros. He, he, was, he was in Zines of Westerns. He was just one of those character actors who was always in the Westerns. And so he reveals that he the whole thing was so he could get his hands back on the orb because if the orb gave the cool easy superhuman strength, what will it do for him? And he starts manhandling Briscoe County to demonstrate his power. Because there is a quick scene in the beginning 
where the dude from the Smithsonian is telling him, I'm taking this back to my lab. And he's telling the guys, load it up. And Thorgood walks over to the tent and closes the, the sheet. And you know, yeah. that's when he goes and he pulls one of the rods out, I imagine. So presumably, so he, said, he recognizes its power and then so wants even though it more. He, he turns it over, but he did empower himself before turning it over. Yeah. Uh, and there was also a, a bit where the government uh, terms the orb as an unearthed foreign object. And one of the government guys is like, that's a mouthful. And then they just write UFO on the box. So awesome. <laughs> what's a UFO? It's clearly a Western, but they want to make sure they tell you right up front, look, don't freak out when we bring sci-fi stuff into this. We've literally got a box that says UFO on it. Be cool about this, okay? And and thus you have the rocket, you know, that, that they're letting you know in the advertising. They're very straightforward. If we have rockets on this show, maybe this isn't a typical Western. Briscoe's getting manhandled by the robber baron, but the robber baron then starts suffering the ill effects of his exposure to the orb. His eyes go black. His cheeks go sunken in. It's very, very stage makeup-y. He looks like he was supposed to be like Dr. Jekyll Dr. or something. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, yeah. And then he falls onto a table and through some really cheesy digital effects combined with some practical elements, he turns to dust. I liked but it. Was, I liked it was, the effect. But it, it was very pre-CGI. It reminded me a little bit of some of that weird face stuff that they were doing in the black and white video of Michael Jackson. But it looked so squirrely to me, I wasn't that into it. I don't even know if that was CGI. I still no, think, I don't think it was CGI. I still I think, think that was, was some, an old practical camera effect where they sort of fade to a mannequin or fade to a... a I don't know what it was, but it just didn't work for me. I liked it. I thought okay. it was cool. That's cool. That's different yeah. strokes. Um, and so we set up that, you know, John Bly's still out there. Uh, Briscoe goes to his father's grave to show that, you know, he loves his father. He's going to catch the men who killed him and just kind of continue his work. And that's pretty much the end Well, they also set up that he's got to find out what's going on with the orb. And there's curiosity about what's going on with the orb because the orb appears to be the coming thing. The coming thing, what he's looking for. That's right. A few things we didn't touch on. Did you know Julius Carrier from anything else? Who? This would be Lord Bowler. Uh, No, no, no. No, I only know him from Briscoe County. He's probably best known for The Last Dragon. Was that uh, Bruce Lee's last movie or whatever? What was The Last Dragon? Or the Bruce Lee... uh he was shown no, up. Just, uh, it was it was in nineteen eighty five. So no, it, it's oh, no, a, it's I'm a wrong. popular eighties movie. If Fix It were here, he'd be crying sacrilege right now. Mm, sorry, and he was in tons of stuff. He passed on unfortunately uh, ten years or so ago, about oh, really? ten years ago. Yeah, but he was a character actor who's in tons of stuff. I mean, when you're that tall and you have that great bass voice, you're going to get a lot of work. There are a ton of other old western character actors in this uh, show too. The Virginian himself, James Drury, was in this one. Paul Brenninger from Rawhide and High Plains Drifters in it. Rayford Barnes from The Wild Bunch. Robert Fuller from tons of 70s shows mostly, but he's also in The Return of the Magnificent Seven. And The Judge was played by Burt Remsen. And this dude was in tons of stuff, including uh, Dick Tracy and a bunch of other movies. This guy... He was always popping up in flicks in the seventies, especially. What about Socrates? You know, is he honestly, anybody, or do I just know him? I, I think you just know him as Socrates. He's done some other character work, but I can't name anything. He was in the Big Lebowski. He was in the Fisher King. But there, there's such small parts. Apollo thirteen, but really small stuff. I, I always know him as Socrates, Paul, even though I've seen him in other stuff. Uh, the big one, though, because he was driving you nuts, is you couldn't remember who the hell Professor Albert Wickwire was. Yeah, and you still haven't figured it out. No. Okay, now. When I was coming on to watching the show, I knew him best from Night Court because he played Harry's eccentric dad on Night Court. Yeah, maybe, right? maybe, that, maybe that's where I know him. 
But of course, he was already famous before then for playing in the Adams family. He was Gomez Adams. Oh shoot! Oh darn! <laughs> yeah, that's got to be it. Adams family and Night Court has got to be where I know yep, him from. Yep, yep. And I love John Aston, so I was so happy to see him. And he's so great. He's basically playing Doc Brown. Right. Yeah. And and he's great at it. It's, it's, it's great fun. He plays so well off of Briscoe. I still suspect that they didn't intend for him to be a recurring character, but it was clear that that should be the case by the time you saw the pilot. So rewatching the pilot today, what did you think of it? Uh, it was slower than I remember. Lugubrious, yes. It was, uh, yeah. But like you kind of mentioned like in the early part of it, they're, they're setting up. It's a right. pilot. They're still you know? figuring it out. Yeah, yeah, they're figuring it out. They're, they're, they're setting some stuff up, but there's, there's still enough in it that has really got me like i what the heck happens with this orb dude right. like i you know the the orb is such a great i don't know the, there's just, the orb is so fascinating i love the design of the orb mm-hmm. the the fact that there's just no you know they don't do the whole prelude of like a comet hitting earth right and then you talk about the mm-hmm. like you've got no clue where how long this has been here that, where it came right. from exactly what, what are the true extent of its powers why mm-hmm. did it work for the the rail workers but it and they killed, came out fine they killed, good. yeah uh, lots of intriguing stuff there, and then you. By the bought- way, a brief truth story. Again, while researching to do this podcast, I found a, a person who was apparently a fabricator working on this show, among other shows, who still had an orb. And I actually reached out to that person to contact them because they, apparently it was available for sale, although no prices were listed. And I was just inquiring because. A, yeah, it's, it's a prop from a movie, so that could be pretty darn expensive. But this show was a pretty big failure. I mean, it, it had a cult following. Uh, it, it did okay on cable, but even though Fox had expectations of the show, those expectations were not met. It was canceled after one season. So it's like, you know, this could be attainable. I could get the orb, the coming thing, but the person never replied to me. Oh. So, but I, but I, I did, I feel strongly enough about the show and about the orb. I actually did reach out to the person trying to buy one of the orbs. We should reach out again and ask for interview for a podcast. Well, if you didn't reply when I was looking to, you know, give them money, I doubt that they're going <laughs> to reply. Yeah, I'll do a podcast for free. Hey man, I'll do it. Cause everybody doesn't have a three podcasts already. Oh, he's probably got a podcast. We should probably look at him. He's got the Orb podcast. We're totally already behind uh, starting this one. I know. We're totally stealing the name. Oh, I got the Orb. It's my podcast. By the way, if by chance I look it up and it turns out there is already an Orb podcast, we're going to call this thing The Coming Thing. Gotcha. All right. So well, to, to continue on about the, the show, the other thing that I, I that other than just the nostalgia kick of me wanting to watch the show over again because it was a part of my childhood is uh, – Man, I miss practical effects. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, and stunts and stunts, right? You know, when, when when he catches up to the train on the jet rail car or whatever, and then he has to lasso it to the train, and then has to shimmy up the rope. That's a real stunt man shimmying up a rope mm-hmm. between a, between a moving train and a car. You know, stuff like that. And uh, and, you, you, and I don't care how good the CGI gets. I don't care how cool well, the blue screen and that's, is. You can tell the difference. It, but the key thing is that this is a network show, and network CGI is way worse. Case in point, have you seen any of the, the, the commercials for this new Magnum PI show? No. That is horrible. It is so we're, we are speaking to a Magna PI fan too. It's worth noting, and there are tons. Like, th- there's a this huge epic chase in it, dude, where he's driving the Ferraris around. Well, I mean, the show's actually on now. You haven't seen the episode? No, right? no, I'm not gonna watch any. Of it. No, but just the CGI in this trailer for the show is so awful. It is like it's an, it's an affront to everything 
I mean, because in the old days, they would have crashed some cars, or at least crashed some miniatures. Right. Crashed miniatures looks better than this network television CGI. And you can tell some of the train stunts on this thing were probably miniatures, right? But they do it so quick, and the flashes are so fast, cutting from real train to fake train. You, can, you can't really tell. And especially, it's not so obvious that you're even thinking about the next, you're not paying attention to the next scene because you're thinking about how bad the prior scene was. It's not doing that. Now, this is sort of leading into the whole... Um, rocket car sequence which was really one of the most incredible experiences in my entire movie career because um, we're going to go in here and we've seen the rocket and now Briscoe has this uh, sort of idea sort of combining his futurism with uh, sort of western tradition take the rocket mount it sideways on a sidecar and use it to chase down the train now you know, in no in no one's right mind would you ever actually build this thing so that it could actually work. You would come up with some sort of movie trick. Oh, you'd way. fake it. You'd get it out of frame and then show some and some other fakery. It, you know. Yeah, you'd tow it. No, but Cam Cooney, I think was that his name. I he, think it was the uh, effects guy. He actually built this thing. This thing actually worked and had an engine. It had a combustible engine in it, which which it had, like had a, a gas, like a like a, yeah. like, a, like a totally. My right foot was uh, was on a throttle so that I could control the. Speed speed of it and the problem i had is that the front of the hat kept going up like gomer pile because i got i actually got going fairly fast and there was one sequence where it just cracked me up because <laughs> yeah i love how that was pulled on up. a piece of filament yeah know, but but it's a thing but 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 bruce was actually riding by in the thing and i remember camp saying now now bruce you got this little button here and yeah and now this button puts the flame on now but you got to be careful because the flame will go like yeah. 20 or 30 feet. So just make sure no one's standing behind the, the yeah. rocket car when you light this thing off. Yeah, you know? I'm like, thanks, Cam. Thanks a lot. <laughs> but there was one sequence where Jack Green, the, the the DP, was laughing afterward because he goes, when we were shooting this and you had to try and come up from behind on the rocket and catch the train, I actually had to come from behind from around a corner in the same shot and try and catch up to the train. And if I came too fast, I would actually ram the back of the train. So I had to... And meanwhile, I'm getting my rope out because I have to lasso the thing. So I have to at least start doing that on camera for real to get the stunt guy into it. You have to get yeah. that far. And I thought, this is the most ridiculous job anyone could ever have. I, you know, what did you do today, Daddy? Oh, I chased a, a, a train on the back of a rocket. And then I lassoed it and crawled across and got on top of it. You know, so it. This was an actor's fantasy in many cores. It's a difficult show. It was hard on everybody, but it, where else would you do this sort of goofy stuff? And it was great watching these stuntmen actually do these transfers. That's what they're called. Yeah. They're called a transfer. And, wing. you know, we had one horse, this horse boss, that was just for that stuff. And the, the Wranglers had a thing called a step. One of the stirrups that was the closest to the train you'd put just a step so your foot could not get stuck in a stirrup because if you jumped off and got caught, you could get dragged by that horse. So you just jumped off a metal L-shaped thing and right on, and I'm still like, forget it, man. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going near that. But they were. I mean, the train was going, you know, 15 or 20 miles an hour, and they rode right up to the side of it and, uh, and jumped on. Yeah, now this is where um, the stunt coordinator kept yelling at me the whole time because I said, I kept telling him, look, how hard could it be? I can just get my legs over and I'll just go from the train to that and they'll just shoot it. This is Berkey Lilly, Clint yeah. Lilly, thankfully, doing this for yeah. me. But And I just did a few feet at the end, but he was starting to get mad because he saw it in my eyes. He thought that I wanted to do it and he went, you better not do this because <laughs> if you fall, that rocket's going to run over you. And yeah. I went, all right, all right. So it's very tempting. You get in the moment, you go, well, I've done two-thirds of this. Let me go the rest <laughs> of the way. 
And this it was neat, the interior of the train, that they actually had yeah. a real interior yeah, that was, you could shoot in. And who knows if these things are even around anymore. I know. It was, it was really great. It was, such a, uh, it was sort of a, such a touchstone to sort of the whole history. That was actually, I think, maybe the only process shot we did was this trestle sequence here in the whole show. Right. Now, this is miniatures again here, this right? Miniature. That's a miniature, and that's a green screen shot out right. of the door. But this, is, you know, I have to realize, was way before those things were done. And so now that fall was a, uh, a miniature. That's a miniature stream. You can see the water looks slightly, yeah. slightly like an old King Kong movie, uh, an old Godzilla <laughs> movie. <laughs> Uh, but it accomplished the effect. You, it you, did. you saw what happened, and exactly. you know at the time, still there was still high budget. Even to have a miniature was just high budget. Yeah, I mean, this was actually fun because, again, now you're on a real train going down the tracks, running up along the top on the wood, and it's where every so often your job feels like it's real. You don't have to fake anything. Right. You're just doing it. Now, of course, this is cut in with miniatures. Yes, here. the uh, I did not actually <laughs> crash this train. So this is all a miniature, a little tableau here, which I thought, you know, again, done pretty well going into the uh, the big finale here. Well, it's funny because I, I recently watched uh, Star Trek Discovery, which is being produced for CBS All Access. And so I'm watching it. And I'm expecting, you know, I'm not expecting like great special effects or anything. And it looks really good. It looks really, really nice. I'm like, holy crud. How are they managing to get these special effects? And I look it up. It's like, because they're spending $8 million an episode Ooh. on Star Trek Discovery. Back in the PA, I get no $8 million an episode. So I'm sure that has a big, plays a big part in that. So that, that was that was one thing that was just really really refreshing is that the stunts the practical effects were all although really good. some of the stunt work is pretty bad too but it's also like the, like the part with a western right you know so there is the spaghetti cheese ball uh, side yeah. to it too and it yeah, kind of, so it kind it, of works that is with the charming show. as well yeah they're not tra- it's not it, it that's right there's a charming factor to it. Uh, they're not. It's not like Magnum PI where they're like, "This is a real like you know, it's an action show." So you're supposed to kind of take everything at face value. Like, yeah. this is a, we're supposed to take this seriously. And so yeah. your, your side is splitting. You're laughing so hard. Uh, in this case, I, I think it it works with the tone of the show. Right. I, I I'd agree with that. But I could have stood without the scarred foot clan guy's foot like lingering in front of the camera for like ten seconds. Yeah. That was not a good. Shot. I did have some problems with the direction on this episode too. I do think that the show as it progresses is tighter a little uh I, I think it's a little better shot this one like some too many of the shots linger for just too long and so part of that's the editing but i do think the direction of the cinematography can a little bit better too you can tell in parts that they spent money on it you could tell the network had some faith in the show and they put some money into it and then there are other parts where it's like well that looks pretty cheap or that's just not very well done so a bit of both but uh, other than that you know i I, I liked it. I, I, I still enjoyed it. I still enjoyed the pilot. I, I, get in, I, I watched it back in 93 when it first aired. I don't think I, I ever got to, because I was videotaping the, the, the show. I didn't start, when, when the series was first getting started, I don't think I taped it from the very beginning. I think I was watching it. I enjoyed it. It's like, I'm, I want to have these for posterity. So I taped most of the series on VHS tapes. I believe I still have those VHS tapes on the I, attic I've somewhere. Some, I've got some episodes in, on, on VHS, VHS as somewhere well, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I don't think I ever got the pilot movie because i don't remember ever seeing it again after the, the initial run um yeah with commercials that's a full two hours yeah yeah minutes. uh and well i was i was taping on extended play so that wouldn't have made too much of a difference uh but, but i do see what you mean though they have broken up in two episodes and yeah um and if it had been a bigger hit too i'm not i, I know that the show re-ran i don't know if the entire show re-ran on the network and i never watched it on cable you mentioned usa network i, and I do I, believe I, watched it on I, USA. I believe it ran in reruns on usa 
years later. So I have never watched this show sequentially. I'm sure there are episodes I've missed. I am 100% sure I have forgotten a lot of this. So I'm very interested to go yeah. through this journey with you, sir. Yeah, but I, I definitely enjoyed the movie. It definitely propelled me to go ahead and keep watching the show, but I didn't immediately start taping it either from the pilot or afterwards. It probably took a few episodes to get in there. The relationships do start to change. Uh, the show, I think, does get better as it progresses, but it's still very cute. Now it's entertaining. If for no other reason than out of love for Bruce Campbell, it'd be easy to keep watching the show, but there's more to it than that. He, he's just so electric whenever he's on screen. Yeah. There's just something about Bruce Campbell. Exactly. I think that's he's why- so charismatic. He's, and he's damned handsome back then, too, especially. Oh, he was in great shape. He's even with a handsome the, guy. Even with the fake mustache. Maybe not with the fake mustache. That's a yeah, really the, bad mustache. Well, maybe even with the fake mustache. But, uh, but yeah, dude, I mean, he good-looking dude, man. Bruce Campbell, good-looking dude. Great personality, just charisma and machismo dripping off the guy in every freaking scene. You believe every woman in the show that kind of falls for him. You totally get it. Right. I, I mean, it, he he's he's great. Everything. If if you mention that Bruce Campbell is in something, I will definitely consider watching it. A lot, whereas a lot of people are like, eh, we'll have to see who's directing it, who's the supporting cast. Bruce Campbell's in it. There's a good chance I'm getting me some Ash or Briscoe out of it. So let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, he's a guy who. You want to see in things, so you have to basically dissuade me. Oh, it's a Bruce Campbell thing. Well, what? What's? Why shouldn't I watch that? And then they'll tell you some reasons. And there's been a number of things I haven't watched with Bruce Campbell because of that. But I'm always willing to at least give something a shot if he's in it. Uh, and I, honestly, I do think too this show. As much as I like the show, I think its lack of success probably hurt his career. Because I, I really do think that, like us, there are a lot of people who are probably looking at this guy and seeing the same those qualities and like, this guy is going to be a leading man. Uh, we're going to put money into this show. And then when it didn't do anything, he, he never really got this chance again. I mean, the only thing that he got as a, a lead actor was like Jack of All Trades. And that was after he'd already been doing Xena and Hercules for a while. So I, I do think this show actually ended up hurting his career. But you could absolutely see why people would have thought he was going to be a big thing at that time. Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I, I'd love to see if there's some sort of uh, narration of his career to figure out why he ne- just never really exploded. I'm sure he's not hurting, right? But uh, you get, him, uh, get up on that Audible and listen to his uh, book on tape or something. What do they call book on tapes these days? Audio, book, audio book, presentation, an audio yeah. book. There you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm an old. You have to lay, you know work that out for me. Uh, yeah, you know, I just don't. I need to do. I really do. I need to go ahead and get audio book because I want to hear him read his own book. And you know, he totally does. You right now, ninety day trial. Yeah, Just I need to, to cancel do that. after the ninety days is up. You can buy his book for free and you keep it forever. <laughs> yeah, I need to do that for if for no other reason than his research for the show. I don't know how much he talks about Briscoe County and his books, but yeah, you're right. Just as far as the overall career, it'd be interesting to well, see. Well, I mean, that. it's you know, is he an ass? Is it his himself that is killing him? I really don't you know think that's I mean? it. I really don't think because people love him, and I don't think that he would have so much love if there was anything wrong with him. I think that it's just he 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 kept being a set that wasn't all that successful. Yeah, that was Evil Dead, did he just the pick Evil the Dead wrong movies roles? were all were, were typecast. I don't. I don't he, know. He's a cult favorite because the Evil Dead movies were super gory and they they did not get wide releases and they were not going to get large audiences because people just were not prepared for that level of gore back in the day. Army of Darkness was his first shot at the brass ring because they thought it was going to be a big crossover hit and it was a modest success but nothing too big. They spent a bunch of money on Briscoe County Junior and then that was not a big success 
and uh, you only get so many shots. But also, I, like, I, I think he got the shots because he's a good guy. But I, you have to do something with those shots, and there. I, I th- but part of it is the material. He's a kind of a quirky guy, and he does quirky material, and that doesn't always go acro- over. Now, he might have done a much better today, but in that time, I don't think people were ready for any of the things he was in. But he's also he seems like a guy that like you couldn't have him co-star, right? But he does. Well, I know, but but I would feel like if I was the star of a movie and you're going to cast Bruce Campbell, deep down, don't you think everybody's going to, you're afraid he's going to steal your scenes? Yeah, you're afraid, you know what I, I mean? I can see that, There's yeah. almost something like that, too, where it's like, mm, so he can't quite make it as the leading guy, but you never want to have him be second piece. Because he detracts from you, yeah. Yeah, so he kind of maybe is in this weird... Well, I mean, because if you think about it, the stuff he did in the latter 90s was mostly Ted Raimi Productions, Renaissance Pictures stuff. And so Kevin Sorbo probably doesn't get to pick who his co-star is on a given episode. You know, uh, Lucy Lawless doesn't get to. And I think Lucy Lawless must like him because he's she's popped up in a bunch of his stuff yep. since then, including Ash vs. Evil Dead. Jack of All Trades, which, again, was another shot at him in the leading role, co-starring with, with another actor. But that didn't go over. That very that didn't even get like a full season. I think that only last like eight episodes 12 episodes something like that so it's it's not for lack of a want in the audience there just isn't a mass audience that was showing up for bruce campbell with the possible exception of burn notice where he was essentially a sidekick or a supporting role but usa network ended up being his home because burn notice ran forever it seemed Mm -hmm. like I just feel like he, he he needs to be a member of Stallone's crew in the next Guardians movie or something. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like he could fit into that kind of quirky, kooky space cowboy. Although, you know, we lost James Gunn now, so maybe maybe he wouldn't fit in that movie. But, you know, I feel like there's something for him somewhere that I would like to – I would like to get me a little more Bruce Campbell because, I don't, you know, Ash vs. Evil Dead is Which stuck was great. On, it's stuck on stars, though. You no, know well, I mean? it's it's over. They, they canceled yeah. it. Well, and it's funny, too, because he was talking about that. He, he said he's officially retired from playing ash williams he's pushing 60 yeah, well, we'll see about that he's he's pushing 60 he's too old for that he's tired of having carol syrup up his nose he just can't do that anymore i totally understand that being the case but he's actually expressed interest in bringing back briscoe county hopefully not ash because he's kind of a moron i'll take briscoe the adventures of briscoe county jr he was the closest i've ever played to actually being like a real hero, not that flawed. He was smart. He was capable. Um, so that that would be me on my absolutely best day. Ash would be me on my worst day. He, I think it's a situation sort of like uh, with Harrison Ford where he's known for Ash Williams. I'm sure he's got love for Ash Williams. I, I know he's got love for Ash Williams. But I think that maybe Briscoe County has a special place in his heart more so than Ash. Because with Ash, I don't know if he necessarily likes playing such a goofus. I mean, especially in Ash vs. Evil Dead, he's a, he's a charming idiot racist misogynist yep. womanizer it's like so there's there's a lot there that, that's probably fun to play but he might want to be able to move past playing somebody who's kind of scummy or briscoe is a really good guy a true hero at character an intelligent person an optimistic person a person who does not take uh life you know willy-nilly you know he he kills he when he has to but it's not well, like it, he's not that he, that's not who he is. He's a dreamer too. Right. And he's looking like you said, he's looking for the next big thing. I mean and, and again, that's a part you can play as an older man much easier than than Ash. Because the physical comedy is such a big part of playing Ash that you, you're not Ash unless he's getting something smashed over his head or something. That's just hard on a body. I mean, Bruce Campbell basically had two careers. He was an actor and he was a stunt man. Uh, even though he wasn't paid to be a stunt man, but he, he did so much of his own stunt work for so long.
long. And I'm sure he's got the aches every morning because of it. So yeah, play Briscoe County. Be like a mentor to a next generation adventurer. You know, something like that. Well, would I mean, be good you, for him. or you wear a, a big trench coat and get into gun battles and ride a horse occasionally. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know if he necessarily. And you have a, the stuntman get thrown out of the, the the first the second floor of a saloon, and you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that'd be I think that'd be awesome. I still just westerns are weird man yeah well see, and i think that was a big part of the problem too is that we talk about how we're comic book guys and so for years they made these comic book tv shows and movies that were cheese ball because hollywood always thought that they had to take comics and adapt them and it, to make them more like tv shows more like movies and usually they'd foreground the really dumb stuff and then they'd background the more sophisticated stuff like they were they they fixated on the the crappier cheesier aspects of comic books and they failed to see the the better stuff the, the the quality stuff the stuff that makes us love the comics and then Marvel Studios comes along and they get everything we love about the comics and and do do the adaptations where it's necessary but they keep that core that we love so much right so that's an instance where you had money men who didn't understand the material and the audience is there and keeps showing up for the material that they're not producing and then finally the people who are fans of the material are the executives, are the directors, are the writers, and you get the what the potential is fulfilled, right? Well, I think that Briscoe County was sort of the opposite, where for decades, film and television was dominated by Westerns. And it, there was just this great love for it. And you saw by the 60s, the, the zeitgeist was moving away from that. But it got some extended life through anti-heroes, through dark uh, revisionist takes on the Western by guys like Clint Eastwood. And they managed to carry that into the 80s. By the 80s, the Western really was pretty much dead, with exceptions. But they kept being these revivals. Like, everybody thought after Silverado, there was going to be a revival. Earlier in the 90s, you had Unforgiven, and everybody thought that was the start of a revival. Young Guns was big. And you can actually see Young Guns, uh, moving into this, you can see where they might have thought, you know, this is going to be a thing. And there was a period in the early 90s where they did a bunch of Tombstone, TV Westerns. Tombstone, Tombstone. You know, but think about it, though. Unforgiven and Tombstone. Those are the Westerns that came yeah. out in the 90s, and then name the third one. Right. You know? And so I think what happened is you had a bunch of TV executives that grew up on Westerns. They they loved things like Wild Wild West. And so they greenlit a Wild Wild West movie. And that was a huge bomb. Or Maverick. Yeah. Right? And so this looked like we're going to basically do a revival of Wild Wild West uh, with, with a twist. And they thought this was going to be a huge hit. And it comes out and it's El Floppo. This thing just does not do well at all in the ratings. And I think that that was a situation where the executives were making the show that they were fans of, the stuff that they grew up on, the stuff that they understood, but the audience was no longer there. They, they, they may have made the best possible sci-fi Western you could make, but if there was nobody there to watch it, and you knew that people were going to show up on Fridays because the following hour, X-Files was coming on. And that show built up over several seasons. It started out as just like a minor thing, but it was enough of a cult hit where it got season after season, ended up running eight seasons. If I recall correctly, it was eight seasons that the thing ran. Um, so the audience was there for X-Files, and they just weren't there for Briscoe County because I think that the zeitgeist was moving away from this sort of thing, even though I thought they did a great job with, with what they were trying to do. Well, I mean, in a lot of ways the western is like the station wagon your your grandparents or your parents own the station wagon the station wagon is practical it's tried and true it runs it fits the whole family it's got a huge you know trunk area where you can fit tons of stuff you can can sleep back there absolutely i saw star wars in the back of one of those the problem is 
everyone grew up in a station wagon and nobody wanted to own what your grandparents drove. Mm-hmm. So the station wagons died in America. We don't want – you say the word station wagon. You show a picture of a station – a car that kind of looks like a station wagon. And people go, oh, looks like my grandmother's car, yeah. right? And I think that's what – Well, lot- and everybody saw Vacation back in the 80s and everybody saw all these movies that made fun of station wagons the back in the 80s. The doofus dad driving this dad, big dumb and wood panel station wagon you around. You didn't shake it. And the same thing is true of the Western. Yeah. That's the thing your dad watched. It's not – what you watch doesn't matter how good or practical or how much it makes sense you will instantly hate it because that's what your dad drove or your grandfather yeah. drove and you'll have somebody jump into a pt cruiser which is a absolutely garbage vehicle but it doesn't have the negative association buy a station wagon dude do it with me a pt cruiser your ride sucks dude it's, why, it's not a station wagon it's why in, I'm, I'm the cool dad in, in in europe they're called estates everybody they love estates in Europe. We don't get any of them here in the United States because we don't buy station wagons. We'll buy an SUV, which is just a lifted station wagon. But we don't like the shape. It's like it's it triggers our brains. We get triggered when we see something that looks like a station well, wagon. It, does, we do it is kind of squished them. like a sandwich. You know, station wagons do look like a sandwich. You don't look like a, a ride. It looks like a, something you would eat. No, I mean, it, it looks like something you would eat. It looks, like, it looks like wood paneling on the road. Uh, okay, no. Uh, modern station wagons look phenomenal. You can get shooting brakes. I can't speak for them because I never see the things. Hatch, look, inherently, it's another reason they killed a hatchback, basically. Nobody wants a hatchback because yeah, they think of station hatchbacks wagons. Too. Hatchbacks are the most practical versions of cars. The lift gate opens. You just set stuff down on it. You get you get a huge orifice to put stuff into. You don't have. It's not the, a trunk that opens up. And these trunks are huge and they're deep, but you only got a tiny little door that opens up for you to actually put stuff in you have to try to angle it or you know what i mean you can't do it hatch with hatchbacks you fold, the, like a roomy you fold the seats like, down you, know. you fold the seats down you can slide stuff in they're by far more practical but because they look like station wagons people don't buy hatchbacks here in the united states the rest of the world everybody loves them and it's because they're practical and they make sense but again it's like it's the western for some reason us americans because our grandfathers and our fathers drove them or our crazy old aunts or our grandmothers we don't want it and i think that that i think unfortunately that's what this show suffered from too people just were out on the western and all you had to show was a dude with a and a slicker and a hat on a horse and they were checking out and they didn't want any part of it because it had to be lame whether it was or not it didn't matter it's a shame just like the station wagon bro this pilot this was something this was filmed by jack green he who shot unforgiven right you know mike hancock was my makeup guy the stunt guys who worked on this had done a lot of westerns before. This was a, a first-class pilot shot by Brian Spicer, who I think at the time was sort of a young whiz-bang. Yeah, uh, you know, he was a shooter. visual-oriented director. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you can look from some of this camera work of, you know, following boots up onto the top of the train and all this. I mean, he, was a, he, had, he had a really uh, very, very cool visual style. Yep. But this really was just a, this was a movie on television it I mean, was. in the truest sense. Well, you know, I think actually what happened was it had a Warner Brothers television at the time and was really a champion of the project. Had 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 basically wanted to see whether he could actually get the, the pilot released as a theatrical film overseas. Everything about it didn't seem like a television pilot. It seemed like you were making a movie. And we, so we approached it that way. And, and, and ultimately, I remember we actually screened it for the chairman of Warner Brothers Pictures at the time. And he really liked it. But, you know, the, ultimately the problem with releasing it as a theatrical movie is, is it didn't have an ending. I mean, it... Mm. It had sort of a pseudo-ending, but it didn't Right, it was really designed end. for television. Now, stay tuned for scenes from next week's Briscoe County Junior. 
Xenozoic Xenophiles. A fan podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent comic series from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. Xenozoic Xenophiles is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And find us at xenozoicxenophiles.com. In 2018. Oh, we believe the secret agents had all that stuff, man. Your mission, should you choose to accept it. My son wants to bond over any kind of spy. Secret agent man, Wild Wild West. My spy, man from Uncle. The Avenger, James Bond. Our man, Flint. Bonding agents, the father and son spy five podcast. Your assets. Old dude. Bialy Frank. And the program's about spies and science fiction. Available to Shout Engine and the Internet Archive. It's not really something I think that most Americans could understand. Bonding Agents is a Rogue Spine podcast. The Film and Water Podcast, a weekly show about movies old and new. Hosted by obsessive movie nerd Rob Kelly and a rotating series of special guests. From sci-fi to horror, dramas to family films, comedies to adventure epics, we watch it all. The Film and Water Podcast is part of the Fire and Water Family of Podcasts. Available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Next week on the adventures of Briscoe County Jr. Power of the orb is wonderful, but in the wrong hands, there's incomprehensible danger. What's in the crates, old man? You take the one on the left, I'll take the one on the right. Briscoe's not dead. You go back and take care of him. Where is he? Even if I knew where that orb was, I'd never tell you why. Wrong answer. The adventures of Briscoe County Jr. An all-new episode next Friday at 8, 7 central.